You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Let's go to God's Word. Uh, We finish up the seventh uh, sign of Jesus in the Gospel of John. We're looking at John chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 38. Let's go to God's Word this morning. As you may realize, we... We engage in many different activities and actions uh, in our worship. Uh, Some of those things are offering praise to God in our singing and in our prayers. And then there's times where we actually then listen to God speak to us. And this is one of those times where we open our heart and we hear God's word. He speaks to us today. If you've ever wanted God just to to speak to you, uh, he, he does it through his word. And so let's go to his word, hear from him. John 11, verse 38. And this is, to kind of set up the scene real quick, Jesus has uh, approached the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who has died, and he's filled with emotion and grief, and uh, as anyone would who sees uh, their dear friend who has died. And so here is what happens now. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a voice, a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come to Mary and had had, had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them, What Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they they made plans to put him to death. This is God's word. Well, the sign that we see this morning is so astounding uh, that it actually, we take three weeks to cover it. We started in this, uh, this story uh, last a couple months ago, and we will finish it a third time in the new year, and we come today to the second time looking at this astounding miracle, this miraculous sign of Jesus raising this dead man from the grave. It's the seventh and climactic sign within this series of the seven signs of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. We know that he did many more than this, and the whole point of it was to to get people to believe in who he was and who sent him, what he came to do. Everything that Jesus has done up until this point, 
through his miraculous signs was to present himself as the God-sent Savior. The God-sent Savior. And raising Lazarus from the dead, the dead is, gives this abundant proof of his ability, of his power, of his credibility. And yet, surprisingly, so many people still don't believe in him. And if people do not believe in Jesus when he raises a dead man from the grave, how will they believe in him when he raises himself from the grave, offering himself and his resurrection as the hope for sinners and sufferers? Believing in Jesus is intended to, is, well, his signs, all of these signs, the whole point of it is to get us to know and believe in him. And it's no different for this one. And here we see this test that happens, the, that this belief that is still the struggle for so many. Let's look first at believing Jesus is the continual test of the Christian life. It isn't something that we do once that happens a long time ago and, and then we don't have to believe in him anymore. We see that this, it is this continual test. Do we believe in what he says? Do we believe in his word? Has anyone ever had to tell you, I told you so? Is that a compliment? That's not a compliment, right? Those are not compliments. These are comments that remind us that you were wrong to doubt. You were wrong not to believe. You were wrong to challenge me. Jesus just got done with this conversation with Martha in our previous passage that we covered a month ago. Martha is one of Lazarus's sisters. Martha is the practical one, right? Mary's the real, the emotional one. Not that emotions aren't practical, but Mary's the one that's really feeling everything. And Martha's the one that says, let's, let's fix this. Let's, let's figure out what we need to do and how to do it. And Jesus, you're taking too long to do it. And so Martha's the one that comes in, in, in to him and they're having this conversation. Here's how the conversation goes. Martha says, Jesus, if you would have been here in time, my brother would not have died. And Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, but we are told that he intentionally delays his coming to Lazarus. He waits two days and then he travels to go to Lazarus. And Martha says, if you would have just been here, he would have survived. And Jesus replies to Martha and says, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection one day. And, you know, in the distant future, he'll, you know, will all be made new. And he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet, yet he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks her, do you believe this? Do you believe this, that I have within myself the power of new life and new resurrection, not in a, a metaphorical sense, but in a literal, real sense to make you new both inwardly and physically? And she says, yeah, I believe. Now, just moments later, like literally moments later, he comes to the tomb and he says, roll away the stone. And Martha says, don't do that. He's, he's, he smells really bad. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus says, didn't I just tell you that your brother will rise again? Didn't I just tell you that your brother will rise again? That if you really believe, you will see the glory of God. You'll see the work of God. Why are you continually to, continuing to doubt, to not understand my promises, to not understand my words? You see, the, the promises of God are not metaphors. They're not anecdotes. They are a reality to live by. When we believe in God, his promises become a reality for our daily life. 
His presence is a reality. His forgiveness of sin is a reality. His resurrection is a reality. His faithfulness is a reality. His affection and care for us is a reality. His sovereign and loving control is a reality. He tells us these things. He gives us his word. He makes promises to us. And it's so easy to think of these things as like these loosely connected metaphors for that uh, just a general kind of feeling of love for us. And he has to keep reminding us, no, I mean these things literally. That there is forgiveness of sin. There is acceptance. There is faithfulness. I will never go back on a single promise that I have made to you. And we are given multiple opportunities throughout our day and countless opportunities throughout our lifetime to believe him in what he says. If you are curious as to what God has called you to do in your life, I mean, who isn't, right? God, what would you have me do? What would you have for my life? How should I live? We often look to those grand things, right? What, will, what can you have me do that will make great impact? The big acts of righteousness, the big things that will really convince me that you're present in my life and that I am being faithful to you. What will, what will you have for me? What's my plan and purpose? Maybe you will be asked to step out uh, for God in big ways and to, be, to have a very visible and public uh, impact for him. But if you're just curious about, God, what would you have me do with my life? It begins and ends with just believing in him. God's plan for our life is to believe in him, to believe in his word. And this is the continual test of the Christian life is, are we gonna believe in what he says? Do you really believe that the greatest thing that you could do for God today is to believe in him? The best that you can offer, the most, the, the most beautiful act of obedience and righteousness and faithfulness is just to believe in his word today. Because something's gonna happen today and tomorrow or the next day or sometime down the road that will challenge your ability to believe. And you might doubt, you might question, you might challenge him. You might look at all the evidence around your life and say, but everything's pointing in the other direction. And he says, didn't I say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Why won't you believe? We are created to believe in him. Our joy comes from believing in him. His work in our life will come from believing in him. Believing in him is, that, is the instrument of his work. It's the instrument that causes his work in our life. You know, I read from one scholar that there was this sort of Jewish myth and maybe superstition at the time that a soul of a dead person would kind of remain close to the dead body for three days. And then the fourth day, uh, the soul would depart from the presence of the body. And that is the time that the body would begin to decay and smell. And so maybe that adds a little bit more like picture to this as Mary is saying, okay, the fourth day has come. And maybe it's adding a little bit more to why Jesus waited to this, this extent as well. That she's saying, no, I, uh, the fourth day, like, she is saying hope is gone because up to the first three days, there's a possibility of maybe some resuscitation they believed because the soul was close by and all hope wasn't lost. But now Martha is saying, Jesus, you're way too long. You've waited way too long. All the evidence now that is that hope is all gone. And Jesus says, didn't I tell you that nothing is impossible for me. 
Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? Didn't I just get done telling you that your brother will live again? Three days, four days, 10 days, 100 days, it doesn't matter. Don't you believe in what I've told to you? And so believing in him is the continual test for anyone who claims to follow Jesus, even when the odds are against you, even when the evidence seems to point in the other direction that all hope is gone. He is faithful. He's challenging you today. He's asking you to trust in him today, to believe in him today. And evidence is pointing in the other direction. And you have a lot of reasons why it's difficult to believe in him today. And this is the continual test that he is putting before us so that we would grow and believe in him, so that we would glorify and honor him and know him and worship him. He is faithful. How many times have, have you sensed God saying to you in a situation, and I'm sure no one has ever felt this, I told you this would happen. Why didn't you listen? Have you ever heard God say that? Just give me a head nod. I won't tell anybody. <clears throat> I told you I would provide. Why didn't you believe? I told you I would show up. Why did you go looking somewhere else? I told you I loved you. Why, didn't, why wasn't that enough? Oh, a hundred times, a thousand times. So many times, right? If you believe him today, you will see the glory of God. If you believe in Jesus today, you will see the glory of God. And here's the best thing I have to say to you right now. Don't take my word for it. Take his word for it. This is what he is saying. I'm just repeating his words. He said, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. That's Jesus' point here with Martha. Take my word for it, Martha. Take my word for it. He never goes back on his word. He never changes his mind. He is faithful till the end. And when he said that Lazarus would live again, he meant that Lazarus will live again in like two minutes. That's what, what, exactly what he means. And it would seem that Martha consents, right? When, so when Jesus says, roll away the stone. And, he, and she's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It seems like she would consent, or he just does it anyway. So they roll away the stone and Jesus prays. And this is, a, this is a surprising prayer. What's surprising about this prayer is that Jesus doesn't ask for anything. Do you notice that? A prayer that doesn't ask for anything. When was the last time you prayed like that? When was the last time you prayed without asking and you prayed with thanksgiving? And that was it. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong to pray in asking. We are actually told by Jesus himself to pray asking. But here there's something unique about his prayer. He prays without asking. He prays in thanksgiving and he says, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. I know that you hear me now. There's something here that we see about who Jesus is and the relationship he has with the Father that is so beautiful in itself, but also beautiful in how he shares that with us. The boldness of Jesus to talk to God the Father is a privilege shared with all who believe in him. The boldness of Jesus to talk to God the Father is a privilege shared with all who believe in him. How would you like to approach God in your prayer life with such confidence? 
to say these words. Thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. I know that you hear me now. Just keep that slide up there for a second. Would you just take like 10 seconds and look that over? How would you like to just go into the, have this relationship with God, never doubting if he hears, never doubting if he is there, never doubting if he, his affection, never doubting his plans for you or if his promises will come true? How would you like to have that kind of relationship with God? Thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. I know that you hear me right now. And then this, that what he says next I think is really funny. And I hope you can see the comedy in it. I'm not praying for me to ask anything for me. But I'm really praying to you so that people who are listening to me might know what kind of relationship I have with you. That's a funny prayer. Maybe it's not funny to you. It's hilarious to me. This is weird, right? I'm not praying for my behalf. I'm not praying so that I might get something from you. You've, this relationship we have, I have everything from you because you're my father and you, you, you pour out your love and affection and goodness and kindness. I will never be apart from your care I'm not worried about us. I'm not worried about what you will do in my life. I'm not worried about that. But I'm gonna pray so that people who are listening might know that you sent me and I have this intimate relationship with you that I ask anything of you and you'll do it. And he's like, okay, I'm gonna go raise Lazarus now. (laughs) And then he goes, he says, I hope you can appreciate what is really happening here. Jesus is basically saying, God, We all know the authority that you have given to me to raise the dead to life. We all know the power that you have given to me. We all know how easy it is for me to carry out your purposes and your will in this world. But not everybody else knows that. So Jesus is praying for our benefit. He's praying for the benefit of those who are listening to him because he knows his power, but we don't always know his power. And he wants us to. He wants us to know that there is nothing too difficult. He wants us to know that it is so easy for him to raise this dead man from the grave. He doesn't even pray for it. It's so easy. Through Jesus' prayer, he's showing us the relationship that he has with the Father that is given also to those who believe in him. Jesus is not just a great teacher among other great teachers. He's not a great example among great examples. He's not one influence among many influences in our life. He's been sent from God with the authority of God to do the will of God. And it's not difficult for him to accomplish the purposes and promises of God in our life. And with this authority and with this confidence, And with the will of God at his disposal, he gives these three commands. Take away the stone, Lazarus come out, unbind him and let him go. And it all happens right away. See how easy that is? See how easy that was for him? I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that Jesus spoke with such authority And the word that came out from him was so powerful that it's good that he called Lazarus by name because if he didn't use Lazarus's name and just said, come out, everyone from the grave would have risen. (laughs) 
I'm just talking to you, Lazarus. <laughs> the authority he had to do it, and it was so easy. And he actually, he tells us that one day will come when he will call, oh my gosh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, anyway. <laughs> it's not the first time that's happened. <laughs> that's why Presbyterians preach with their hands down. Okay. <laughs> He will call us from the grave and he will come back and he'll say, come out. He will call us by name, each and every one of us. And we will all come out of our graves. We will be given new life, new spiritual life, new physical life. And it's not hard for him to do that. That's the power. That's the authority. Jesus' words entered the tomb and brought life where there was death. Lazarus' heart began to beat blood again. His blood flowed throughout his body. The rotting body became healed and whole. And he walked out still with the grave clothes on his face and hanging from his limbs. He was alive again. This isn't a metaphor. It's not a parable. It's history. It's a true story of what happened. And it is a real work of the power and authority of Christ. And yet we know, even though it is the greatest of all miraculous signs that that he did and he performed, it is a glorious picture of what Jesus has done for each and every one of us who believes. We are told that we are dead in sins, incapable of living and obeying uh, God, incapable of of, of uh, a righteousness of our own that would earn his acceptance. We are told that in Christ is, the, is within him is the power of life and death. And Jesus calls us out of spiritual death and into spiritual life with him. We can't help but, but make a comparison uh, between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus when he rose from the grave himself. Lazarus is given new life, but the rags were still on him. His face was wrapped and the rags were hanging off of his body loosely. Jesus is risen to new life, given new life, and his clothes are, what? They're folded neatly on the stone table where he laid. The body rags and then the, and then the head rags were laid neatly in their place. Lazarus was given new mortal life, but he would die again. Jesus is raised into the power of endless life, life that doesn't end, life that he maintains even now in heaven. And those who believe in Jesus will hear a shout on the last day. I would tip it over if I could, but I can't. There's no more coffee. They will, they will hear a shout on the last day, come out of your graves, and we will be given endless life like Jesus. And we will be ushered into the fullness of joy that has no end. Those who believe in him will have that. How is it possible that we can participate in this? How is it possible that that there will be some that, that will look at him and see his resurrection and will deny him and won't believe and won't trust? There are many, and at that time that didn't believe, there are many even today that have, that have heard of his works and haven't believed. And yet he continues to, to preach this good news to us. 
And the question that remains is, how is it possible for us to really participate in this resurrection with him? Our next setting, I think, gives us the clear clues of how we can know that we are ones that will come out of the grave with Christ, that we will be with him. And it is knowing that new life comes through punishment and substitution. And this next scene with the religious leaders shows us exactly how this comes to be for us and for all who believe. Now, as you're thinking about this, remember the crowds are are around again as they have been, right? You imagine, look at all the things that Jesus has done, right? Water into wine and raising uh, or uh, saving a, a, a boy who was a near death and, and giving sight to a blind man and, and uh, a person who was uh, disabled for 38 years now being able to walk. And we're seeing all of these, right? Feeding 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. And now he's got a lot of crowds following him and he raises this man from the grave. What would you do if you saw something like that? Uh, We're told that many believed in him. That's expected, right? Uh, We're told that uh, not everybody did. Others went to the Jewish officials, tell them what what they just saw, look at what this man just did. And here is where they now plot to kill Jesus. What kind of hard heart must you have to see a resurrection and then try to get that person killed. Well, the kind of person who's trying to protect their own interests, the kind of person who's threatened by the power and authority of Jesus. And these religious leaders are, their concerns are not primarily spiritual, their concerns are political. Their concerns are political, they had to deal with Rome. So the Israelites, the Jewish people had a deal with Rome. Rome would, Rome had kind of conquered them and was ruling over them, but Rome had a deal with them. Rome said, you could worship the way you want to. You could worship your own God. You can have your own temple. Uh, you can even have your own leaders to kind of exercise a certain kind of limited authority over you. So you can kind of be your own people. But what we want in return is we have ultimate authority over you. If we want to step in, you have to pay taxes uh, to us. Uh, and and uh, if you don't kind of ruffle our feathers, we'll kind of leave you alone. And they liked that. They liked that arrangement. And so the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the temple leaders, they had a sense of power and authority over their people. They were able to maintain worship in their own way. And the worst thing that could ruin it for all of them is finally the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the promised Messiah, the ruler of the world that would come in and take all of that privilege from them. That would threaten their own interests. And they said, we got to put an end to this. And so they decide not what is right, they decide what is expedient. They decide to do something that is expedient for them, something that will maintain their own rights, something that will keep them in their own power and authority so that they did not have to give up or relinquish their power to somebody else. And they decide to kill Jesus so that they can save themselves. And the high priest says, if we want the nation to live, then Jesus must die. And in a very strange way, he is so true. (laughs) He is so right. He is speaking about punish and substitution. For punishment, he says, let's take an innocent man, whom we know is innocent, 
We have nothing against him. And Pilate even says that at the governor, right? He even says this. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. I wash my hands of this at his crucifixion. So punishment says this. Let's take an innocent man and let's treat him like he's guilty. They didn't plot his arrest and then give him a fair trial to figure out if he was guilty. They decided this night that he was guilty and they needed to arrest him in order to punish him, even though he was innocent. They decided he was guilty even though he had done nothing wrong and they arrested him in order to kill him. And he's also a substitute. They say it's either Jesus dies or we die. And they get together and that's the problem. That's the dilemma. There's somebody has to die and it's not gonna be us. Someone's gonna lose their comfort. Someone's gonna lose their rights. Someone is going to lose their claim on their own life and we don't want it to be us. Let's make it be Jesus. And so what they're doing is they're creating a substitution, his life for ours. If we wanna save our nation, then Jesus must take the fall. Friends, can you see something here? God is using the most evil of evils to still advance the beauty of the gospel here. They, are, they mean this for evil, right? They mean this for injustice. And yet it is the most beautiful picture of the gospel for us. Because on the cross, Jesus is treated guilty even though he did nothing wrong. And that is because on the cross, he bears the guilt of our sins. On the cross, Jesus is punished for our sins in our place. One man must die so that God can gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. These are the very words of Caiaphas, the one who is evil and plotting against Jesus' murder. He says one man must die so that God can gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And it's almost like God is saying, that's my, that's my plan exactly. The high priest gets the concept perfectly right, but just not in the way that he should. Isn't it ironic that they want to kill the one who has power within himself to bring life out of death? What do they think is gonna happen? Do you realize how much this is, that, that we are like Caiaphas at times? How often we fall and, and slip into that, that trap of, of self-protection over faithfulness? How often we do what is expedient rather than what is right? How often we twist or bend the truth because otherwise we would lose too much? All of that is saying like, Jesus, you take the fall for me. You, you hurt so that I don't have to hurt. And he says, that's exactly what you need me to do for you. But not in the same way you think. Even more so, you need me to, to die for you so that you might live. Believing in Jesus is the continual test of the Christian life. Believing that he is the one that must be our punishment and must be our substitute. That if we desire life with him, if we desire forgiveness, he must die in our place and take our guilt. Is that Jesus is saying to us, you need me to die so that you can live. You need me to be judged so that you can be forgiven. You need me to be rejected so that you can be accepted. The resurrection of Lazarus is not only showing us the power and authority that Jesus has over life and death, 
but it is showing us a beautiful picture of what the gospel means for us. That Jesus must die in our place. He substitutes himself for us. He must be rejected. He must be, he must be killed so that we can live. And that is the beautiful promise and invitation to all of us. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That we will raise from the grave, that we will be risen spiritually, given new spiritual life and one day be given whole, complete, glorious life and be with him in the fullness of joy. And others see that as a threat. Others see Jesus uh, coming into their life as a threat to their freedom. But for those who believe, know that it is, it is the only way to real freedom. To give up of ourselves and our rights and to trust in him. We need that extravagant love. We need that hope. This is the end of the first half of the story. Now we have like 30 more weeks in John. <laughs> And we've only gone through, and, and just in a few, we've, we've just, the rest half, this is the end of the beginning. The last week of Jesus' life is a third of the Gospel of John. 30% just, just focuses on the last seven days. But as you see here, they say, let's kill him. And the rest of the Gospel is, is now all about how they go about accomplishing that. But let's not move on to that. We're going to move on to that in a couple weeks but let's pause before we do and, 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 and think about the first half that is all about, here's who he is. Do you believe in him? Here's what he has said. Will you trust in him? We can either reject him and doubt in him. We can oppose him and say, no, I don't want, I don't, I don't want you to change my freedoms and to change my life. It's either you or me, Jesus, and it's not gonna be me. You see him giving your life for you and dying for your sins. Put your trust in him. And then what we see going forward will be so much more beautiful, so much more wonderful, but how he accomplishes our deepest longings and our needs. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.